Almighty God, thank You that You love us enough to rob us of our illusions so that we might become both real and whole. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, One of the most painful aspects of being a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple and apprentice of the great rabbi, is a necessary and discomforting disillusionment with the pleasant mirages with which we so frequently live. Uh, Something happens when we attach ourselves to the rabbi who embodies reality in a way that no one else does. When you attach yourself to reality, uh, you are immediately in the process of a full-blown disillusionment with everything that is sub-real. And this is what happens to us as disciples. Um, and uh, we become disillusioned with the world. That, was, that would be St. Paul's way of describing it. With the world, that is, with the false system that gives a temporary but never long-lasting fulfillment. I, I was dealing with a friend a few months ago who uh, thought that he had the near-perfect family. This is the family that you would always want to uh, invite people to meet. Uh, because they were, uh, they seemed together, they seemed well-adjusted, they were compassionate and kind, but he was totally disillusioned with the perfection of his family because he discovered that his father was having numerous affairs for the last 15 years. Uh, he was destroyed and entirely disillusioned, and he may never uh, uh, have his inner world quelled because of this discovery. Um, th- this is also true, of course, of your retirement. It's certainly true of your retirement isn't it? Aren't you disillusioned with your retirement? Uh, especially the money that you've raised or that's been promised to you, you're, you're disillusioned because the invisible hand didn't do what, it was, what, it, what everyone said it would do. And now you have one third of what you had, and instead of living in Boca, you're going to be living in Slippery Rock uh, <laughs> or Grove City forever. And you'll never escape. Uh, and, uh, or, or, or maybe it's a first child. You know, your first child uh, seemed that they were approaching life from a, um, in a receptive way. They were learning about God and truth and reality. And they've made what the world calls bad choices. Uh, let's just call it original sin. But bad choices. And now they're so, uh, they're so far off the beaten path, you don't know if they're, uh, they'll ever come back. And they're breaking your heart day after day. And you're disillusioned with this notion that, well, we did everything right in our family. We did everything right. And it didn't work. We followed the plan. And the plan didn't pay off. And so disillusionment can be a very, very costly thing. And we discover that in this story from St. Mark's Gospel of a trust fund 20-something, a deeply pious trust fund 20-something, who is invited to embrace disillusionment. He was invited by Jesus Christ to embrace disillusionment, but instead of embracing it, he was disillusioned with Jesus instead. And he walked away. This was a failed calling, if you will, a calling that never materialized, and I want to talk about it tonight. I want to talk about it in three parts. I want to talk about an earnest question, a surprising love, and a spurned call. Start with the earnest question when things are still good, if you'd like to follow along. 
As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. This man shows to us his spiritual depth and concern when he asks Jesus not just a religious question, it's the religious question. I mean, that's why you're all here. You're not just here because your friends have showed up or because there's been some pressure. That's part of it. But part of the reason that you're here is that you're scratching at something of eternal quality. Uh, Part of you wants to know that is there anything on the other side? And is there a way of getting to that other side uh, without self-destruction? Uh, and, and this is the great question of life and the great question of religion. And it's amazing that the man asks this question and not some other question, like, how do I use religion to get more money? Uh, how do, I want to know the will of God for my life as it relates to a girl or as it relates to a job or as it relates to where I'm supposed to live. Uh, He doesn't ask a question about temporal concerns. He wants to know, when this life is over, is it possible for me to have a life that is ongoing? And um, implicitly in the question, is there a way for me to be connected to God as friend rather than combatant forever? Is there a way that I can live with the Creator in harmony? And this is the brilliance of this man. He doesn't ask a question that's temporally bound. He asks something of eternal weight and glory. And Jesus gives him a a fascinating answer. Well, it's actually not an answer at first. He corrects his theology or governing assumptions. Um, He says, well, you call me good teacher. Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. Sidebar, this is not Jesus denying his own divinity, saying, well, essentially, I'm just the same as any other guy at a bar. So why should you listen to me? If he intended that meaning, it would contradict everything else in Mark's gospel. So he probably doesn't mean I'm not, in fact, divine. I'm just like you. I'm hashing it out, too. You know, maybe you can teach me something. I mean, that's not his approach. Okay. Uh, Instead, he is saying to this man, uh, you've just called me good. The only one who could be rightly labeled good is the one who made all things good and who is himself good in character. Uh, The only person who could wear that label is God. You've just given me a descriptor that would only be uh, attachable to the divine. Do you really know what you're saying? Do you know the implications of calling me good teacher? Because you're equating me with the one who sent me. So, end of sidebar. Jesus then brings him to the commandments. Interestingly, he doesn't bring him to the first tablet of the law, which is about God, loving God, not constructing idols and so forth. He brings him to the second tablet of the law, which has to do with ethics in terms of human relationships. Do not murder, do not steal, and so forth. We read them tonight. Notice how the man responds to Jesus' quotation of the commandments. All of these things I have done from my youth. It's bold. 
I mean, it's very bold. You, in comparison with all of you good Anglicans who are here tonight, did you notice what we said after every single commandment? Some of us may have meant it, some, some maybe not. But, but the liturgical response to each commandment being read uh, involves um, um, guilt and misdirection. Have mercy upon us, i.e. I've broken this, and incline my heart to keep this because I don't want to. <laughs> In my flesh, I don't want to, right? So that's what it, it assumes, failure. Um, and yet this man comes to Jesus and says, all of these things I have done. Unlike Israel that said at Sinai, all of these things we shall do, he says, all of these things I have done. Uh, and um, uh, now we'll get to that. Jesus doesn't challenge him there necessarily. But I want to say that the commandments are our allies, and here's why. Uh, They're like really good, honest friends. Now, I don't like my friends to be honest. I like, remember Cheryl Crow said, lie to me, but please don't leave me. That's what I want my friends to do. I just want my friends to affirm everything I think. (laughs) I have ideas. I just want people to buttress those ideas and say, you're right, Ethan. All of your problems have to do with other people. (laughs) That's all. That's all I've ever wanted. Uh, And... uh, but but my my good friends don't do that. They're still kind, but they say, Ethan, do you like? I see that this is happening in your life. What, what, tell me about that. What's what's go, what's really going on? And the commandments are like that. They're like prophetic friends who who uh, speak into our situation. Uh, and and this man needed them to address him more deeply. And we'll get into that. But he asked an earnest question. <laughs> And this earnest question leads to a surprising love from Jesus. Verse 21. Only Mark includes this little comment. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Looking at him, loved him. See, in, in, in Jesus Christ, we have not only something unique in terms of God and man together, In Jesus, we have virtues uh, that are together, uh, virtues that we don't often find in each other that fit well together. So we have perception and love at the same time. Jesus looked at him, meaning he really saw who this person was. He understood him. He understood his background, his life, his drives, his gilded greed. He understood him. He perceived him. And at the same time, he loved him. Now, that is not often true in our experience, because in human experience, it's generally one or the other. I perceive you as you are. I'm starting to really see the real you. And uh, that makes me want to put up walls because I'm afraid of the damage that you could do to me. And the more I get to know you and the more I spend time with you, I, I see that you're riddled with things that could bring darkness into my life. And so if you perceive, it's hard to love. On the other hand... Uh, when you really love someone and you and you are your head over heels, uh, you tend not to want to perceive everything that is wrong in that person. Uh, I was um, I, I was thinking about this the other day, how little we actually know each other. You know, uh, even if you're married, you, I mean, you think you really know your spouse. The tr- you know a lot about them. That's true. But there's still things going on in that other person that you can't necessarily see or detect. Uh, the, the, the truth is that sometimes we love because we don't perceive everything. We're blinded to certain aspects of, of uh, 
of darkness in the other person. But Jesus was a person who could perceive and love at the same time, sees you as you really are, and the love is still extended. And so he sees this young man and loves him. Now, I call this a surprising love, not because it's surprising that Jesus loves people. That's what Jesus seems to do. But I call it a surprising love because it runs contrary to an idea rattling around in certain sectors of Christianity. And here's the idea. The idea is that God's love only extends to people who accept him. Put another way, God only loves the elect and hates everyone else with a perfect hatred. So it's love for you if you're elect, I hope you are, and it's hate for everyone else, unmitigated hate, and there's, no, there's nothing else going on there. Um, most people don't believe that, but there are aspects of that that can creep into our theology. But I want to see that in this text, we see something different. We see perfect sight and perfect love for someone who turns away and, for all we know, never comes back. And so, put simply, even when there is no effectual calling, to use theological language, when there is no effectual calling toward conversion, there is, in fact, a base-level love that God has for his world and everyone made in his image, whether they are receptive to him or not. Remember, friends, it is not for God so loved the church, but for God so loved the world. Even people who say no, That's the generous kind of love that God has. And I know we don't often love like that. Isn't it great that God is not like us? And so it's a surprising sort of love, a generous, some would say reckless sort of love. Jesus loved this pious trust fund profiteer, and he loved him enough to offer him an invitation, an invitation to be a disciple to be a friend, to be a follower, uh, an invitation that would involve, by necessity, a righteous disillusionment in which this young man would begin to perceive reality in a new and surprising and an upsetting way, which would lead to a spurned call. An earnest question, a surprising love, and a spurned call. Uh, Jesus does not argue with this young man regarding the commandments that he claims to have not broken. Instead, Jesus, for this man and for you and for me, goes for the Achilles heel. And all of us have an Achilles heel as it relates to sin. We might be able to say in terms of the actual act of adultery, I haven't done that one. But Jesus goes right to the... He's like a heat-seeking missile. Isn't that annoying sometimes? That, That Jesus just goes right to the issue. And he bypasses all of the shields and the defense mechanisms and goes right toward it. And he says, one thing you lack. Go and sell all that you have. Give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Luther, in his commentary, says that the rich young ruler was in fact a commandment breaker, but in denial. And that not only did he break a commandment, he broke the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me.
he had a golden one. You see, this is the, this is the situation. This young man goes to Jesus with an omnitemporal and eternal question. How do I have eternal life? But at the end of the day, he's more preoccupied with his temporal concern than his eternal question. It's about the stuff. It's about the bank. It's about the house. It's about the servants. It's about the cooks. It's about the retirement. And he didn't want to end up in a ditch somewhere. And so, um, his temporal obsession with money betrayed his original pious question. And we learn something kind of frightening in this passage, friends. Fascinating and frightening. Not only can sin blur our vision of God, blessing can do it too. Most people would consider wealth, comfort, a blessing. And very often, it is. And not everybody in the New Testament who was wealthy had to give up everything to follow Jesus, every, every bit of their material possessions. But in this case, this man was so wrapped up in stuff that the only way to shake him free was to leave it all behind. This probably came as a great shock to him. It also came as a great shock as we see the disciples. It mentions it twice, how astonished they were. Why? Because it was believed, given the nature of the Sinai Covenant and its pledges of success and uh, benefits in the Promised Land, if you were obedient, that wealth or prosperity became a sign of God's favor. And so the disciples are saying, wait a minute, if this guy's out and he's rich, i.e., has the marks of God's blessing, what the heck does that mean for us who have lost everything? Because if he has no chance, then we certainly have no chance because he bears all the marks of belonging to God. Get into that in a bit. But we learn something frightening here that, that putting a blessing or a gift on the level of the giver actually turns the gift into a curse. This is what idolatry does. It's, it's the sickness of idolatry that we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. We take it a gift and make it the giver. And we end up being identified not by our relationship to divinity, but our relationship to something God made. And it becomes a distraction. And it starts molding us and crafting us in its image. And we become its slave. And we lose our humanity. And we end up having hellish tendencies birthed on the inside of us. That's what idolatry does to us, and that's what's happening to this man. And Jesus, as you know, is very nervous with wealth. He doesn't always condemn it outright, but he's nervous about it, seeing it almost as a virus that creates this false sense of security in us that prevents us from understanding ourselves as foundationally needy. I had a wealthy man once say to me, you know, I used to think I was invincible because I bought a Hummer. He had a very nice Hummer. And he bought a Hummer, and he had a great house, and his children were all you know, well-educated. Two of them were lawyers. It was a good situation. The problem was uh, that he got the flu. And he said, here I am, totally protected from everything, and a minuscule virus, so small I can't even see it, destroys me for two weeks. I've learned that I'm not, in fact, invincible after all. But that's what wealth can do. It can help you to live in a pretend universe in which you're the exception to the decay of the human race. Um, 
And this is why Jesus is nervous about it and said it's very hard for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of God because many of them don't think they need to. Remember, Belinda Carlisle, friends, heaven is a place on earth. And with enough money, you can fool yourself into thinking that it actually is and that you can create it. Uh, And so what happens? Jesus challenges him here, touches the Achilles heel, and he walks. He says no. And he goes away and he's very sad. I'd like to think that he later ran into St. Paul in Ephesus. And Paul talked to him about Jesus and talked to him about justification by faith. I'd like to think that he talked to mystical St. John and John was telling him about the incarnation and how Jesus isn't asking you, rich young ruler, to do what he's never done. He had the wealth of paradise and gave it up. He's asking you to join him in this. Whether those conversations happened or not, we don't know. All we know is that he walked away and he never came back. It was just too much. This disillusionment was too much. And uh, so that's him. That's his story. What about us? You know, if Jesus were here in this church, if he, was, if he were physically present, and he said to each of you, you know, I have, a, I have some time this week. I'd like to make an appointment. I, want to t- I just want to talk. So we're going to meet at Beans on Broad and the upstairs you know, section, which is, which is quieter. And, and I just want to talk to you, and you have an hour, and you can say whatever you have to say, and I have questions. I, I think that that would be a fascinating exchange. I think that he would talk a lot about our own illusions, illusions that cannot and will not ever bring us the fulfillment we seek. I think that he would talk to us about money. Maybe he would talk to you about money. Maybe he would say, you know, your whole life has been about accumulating a sense of security. What is that about? Do you not trust me at all? I mean, I wonder if he would talk to us about like this incessant need we have to please everyone, even to the point of deceit. Yeah, I read that book. I saw that movie. No, I, I like you. Of course I do. I agree with you. This incessant need to govern and massage everybody's emotional universes so that everything is fine around you and they like you and you like them and you have all these peacekeeping treaties, essentially. Or maybe he would talk to you about your, like your sex life, which is just like crazy and out of control. And he would say, like, how many of these dalliances do you have to have? I mean, it's hurting you. It isn't even fun anymore. It's just destroying you on the inside. What, what is that about? I wonder if he would talk to us um, about, about how we starve our bodies. And he says, you know, you're beautiful, but you never think that. And you don't eat. Or you, or you starve yourself. Or you throw up. And you're, and you're hurting yourself. You're just killing yourself. And your body is it's injured. And I, I love you. And I don't want you to do this. I wonder if, if he would talk to us about physical violence and he would say, you know, I know that you hit her. What are you doing? I mean, what is your problem? What's driving you? I think he would say to all of us about something, you need to, it, you need to walk away. There needs to be a death to this old way of doing things because it's so destructive. I think that's what he would say to us. And we would say back, I would say back, if he touched my Achilles heel, what you're telling me to do is impossible. Here's where the Son of God is helpful. 
he would agree with you. He would. In the text, the disciples said that this is impossible. And Christ says, yes, with man, with human beings, it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. He can even bring you through the eye of a needle. And this is the whole point of the passage, um, that, that this young man has to come to terms with reality, and he has to be disillusioned. And the way toward that goal is through a door marked God. God is the only one who can really, at the end of the day, help you. We have to have an eternal connection here. This isn't, we're not here because of liturgy. We're not here because of like Britishness. We're not here because we think we're like better than Baptists. That's ridiculous. We're here to have a connection with God. We need better food than that. We need something ultimate here. We need a real connection that can help us and give us the, the eyes to see and the disillusionment with the world that we so desperately need. And the, this disillusionment that I'm talking about is seen so beautifully in the life of Whitney Houston. You may remember. I'm serious. She died a few years ago. You know this. The, the story is beyond tragic. I mean, uh, at, at her funeral, which was four hours long, this, it was a great and beautiful service. Tyler Perry, do you know who he is? He is the author and director of the, you know, the Medea films, Diary of a Mad Black Woman, and so forth. If you haven't seen it, stay up late tonight and watch it. You know, watch one of them. And uh, and he was asked to give a eulogy at Whitney Houston's funeral. Uh, you you know that Whitney Houston was a recording artist who sold over 170 million albums, and she was a Christian person, while at the same time suffering from a difficult marriage to Bobby Brown. And then a severe drug addiction, which eventually claimed her life. She died alone in a bathtub, her nose full of cocaine. So Perry said this during her funeral service. He said, not long ago, Whitney Houston and I sat in a restaurant in Atlanta, just the two of us. She told me about her life. And I was very surprised by how candid and revealing she was. She would talk about the things that she had gone through and the things that made her sad and things that were tough. And as she spoke, I saw this heaviness descend upon her. But before I could even get words out to encourage her, she would stop and shake her head and say, but the Lord, but the Lord. Houston sang about her own disillusionment in the last song that she ever wrote. It's an autobiographical song about how all her illusions, you know, fulfillment in this marriage, fame, drug addiction, how they never worked. And how she needed something stronger. And the song is called, I Look to You. It's about God. So these are some of the lyrics. As I lay me down... Heaven, hear me now, for I am lost without a cause after giving it my all. And winter storms have come and darkened my sun. And after all that I've been through, who on earth can I turn to? For every road that I have taken has led to my regret. 
and I don't know if I'm going to make it. Nothing to do but lift my head and look to you. I look to you, and when all my strength is gone, in you I can be strong. And when melodies are gone, in you I hear a song, for I look to you. That's the idea, that when all the illusions are stripped away, there's only one shimmering, shining lamp that's left, the Son of God for you, who has called you to himself. And this is why Jesus lost his wealth and his life, to unchain you from illusion and to give you something better, real life. And don't worry about the other stuff, because he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the other things will align themselves. They'll be added unto you as well. But we have to begin with God. And this is why at communion, we come with open hands, with nothing in our hands. But think about it this way. Think about it tonight as an exchange. We come with empty hands in an admission that we are lost without a cause after giving it our all. And that our levees are broken and that the walls have come crumbling down and we present to God at his table our illusions that are not going to work ever. We present them to him and say, I give you this. I give you my mirage, for I want you to be my only future. And it's at that place that the impossible is made possible. When we can become new, when we can take up our cross, when we can follow our Christ, and at that point, friends, God sets us down in a wider place. God will never lift you up without sitting you down in a wider place. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.